Also, I'd like to remember to remind those that watch us via live stream. I had a couple people get in touch with me this week about uh, uh, the dates again of the Bible conference, which is June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. Uh, they also asked about motels, and I told them about the ones that they should get in touch with. But uh, if, if, you're, if you're making plans to be with us in June, you need to go ahead uh, and make your uh, motel reservations because I can promise you uh, they're probably already going to be short. Uh, but I hope and pray, and I know that the Lord will work it out to where whoever he intends to have here, he'll have here. And uh, we'll go forward with it. Take your Bibles with me this morning and turn back to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to preach the third lesson in this series, the pursuit of peace and the pursuit of holiness. That's the title of this one, the pursuit of peace and holiness, part three. I don't know about you, but I have never, uh, I think, in my entire lifetime, even though I talk big sometimes, I'm not a, I'm not a person that likes controversy and problems. I want peace. But here's the thing. I don't want peace at the expense of compromise. You don't either. We will not and we cannot ever compromise Christ's person or his work, who he is, what he did, what he actually accomplished, where he is now. We need to always keep in mind that whatever the scripture set forth, this truth is set forth clearly and concisely and with great simplicity. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing, not charging their trespasses unto them. How does God, that's the, here's, the, here's the question of the ages, how can God do that? How can he reconcile sinners to himself and do it in a way to where he is glorified and honored as a just God who will by no means clear the guilty and at the same time reveal himself and honor and magnify himself before the eyes of his people as a Savior? How can he do that? There's only one way. He, God, made him, as Christ the Son, to be sin for us. And this person who was made sin for us, he knew no sin. Why that we, sinners by birth, by nature, by practice, and by choice, might be made the very righteousness of God in him. So whatever peace we seek, and whatever holiness we pursue in this lifetime, it always begins right there. We're already reconciled to God. We're not trying to get reconciled. We're already holy before God. We're not trying to get holy. I'm not getting holier. I know a lot of people have trouble with that. They, 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 we've been taught all our lives, and we have this mentality and this mindset that's just, it's just second nature to human nature that seems to think that we can somehow improve ourselves, that we can become better than we were. Listen, we can get better jobs. We can have more money in the bank. We can put better clothes on. We can, I was at the funeral home this week and there was a, a, for a friend of my wife's and there was a lady there and she, you ever seen these people had so much plastic surgery that their faces just pulled back, you know, and I'm like, you can do all that you want. You, you can't improve. Sometimes it's improvement. Sometimes it's not. We can improve this flesh outwardly, but spiritually, listen, I, I am the same man I was when Christ revealed himself to me 
37 years ago. Same passions, same sinfulness, proneness to sin. I, I think about it a lot. Don't you prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's every day of my life. People say, oh, preacher, don't talk that way. That's, that's the present reality. And but for the grace of God, you know what we'd do? We'd go away, all of us. But our God has promised us what? He is able to keep us from falling and to present us to himself holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. So Paul is stressing to the writer of Hebrews, I keep saying Paul, it makes no difference. I know some people get all bent out of shape if you attribute it to Paul or to whoever you think wrote it. Let's just say whoever the author is of the book of Hebrews, which we know this, all scripture is breathed out by whom? By God. I was thinking about this. I was reading an old Arthur, a very old Arthur from back in the 1500s this week, and he made a very good point that I think preachers more than anybody else have a, have a tendency to forget. The apostles, Peter, James, Paul, I don't know all, do you know, do you know I don't know all 12 of them. I can't name them all. I should have paid more close attention in, uh, in my childhood, but I did but whoever those 12 apostles were, they were divinely inspired. When Paul wrote these, this book, now you got to remember, at the time these apostles were doing their activity on the earth, there was no King James Version of the Bible. Matter of fact, the only thing that existed was the Old Testament. And you didn't even have an Old Testament Bible. Every house didn't have an Old Testament Bible in it. But all those Old Testament prophets and all these New Testament apostles, of which there are no more, they're dead and gone. They were, listen, they, every word they spoke, it was divinely inspired. Kenny, we ain't like that. I can tell you the word of God, but you can't point to my words and think they're you can't say that is inaccurate. That, that it's, you know, it's, it is the express, inaccurate, infallible word of God. Now, it ought to follow the word of truth. It must follow the word of truth. It must declare that which is true. But listen, it's spoken by a man that is just he's filled with the Spirit, I hope and pray. I know I am. If I, if I receive the Lord Jesus Christ, I've rested in him as the Lord my righteousness. And God's revealed himself in me and to me. I'm filled with the Spirit. I'm not getting filled. I'm filled. But there are no more apostles. That's why it is our responsibility to ever and always try every spirit right? To see whether the things that are spoken agree with what? That which is divinely inspired. And if it does not agree with that which is divinely inspired, what should we do? We should flee. Huh? And so he is writing to these, to these Hebrew believers who are, some of them have already departed. Some of them are gone. There are others who had identified the same way these that are gone, 
are being tempted and tormented and troubled and encouraged to leave that which is true. And he makes it very clear to them that if you can leave it, you don't know it. They went, John put it this way, they went out from us to make manifest that they were not part of us. For if they had been part of us, if they had been with us, where would they stay? So the long and the short of it is, is if any man, any woman abides not in the doctrine of Christ, you don't continue in Christ's accomplished work of salvation in his justification and sanctification and final glorification of all those whom he represented. If you can't abide and continue in that and never compromise it, what you have no right to think that you're a child of God. And so he makes it clear to them, we're not of those that draw back but of those that do what? That continue to believe in spite of ourselves, in spite of our failures, in spite of our unbelief, in spite of our sinfulness. What do we still come back? We, come in, we, we follow our Lord's word. Come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And that's just not that initial when he calls us and draws us to himself. That's all our lives. He could Listen, every time we go wayward, you know what our God does? He calls us back. Sometimes he calls us back with chastisement. Sometimes it's a still, small voice. Sometimes it's an earth-shaking event. But still, all those whom he loves, who he chastises, remember what he said, if you do not receive chastisement, you're not sons. But he calls us back. So he's encouraging these, these believers, these, these people who have at least professed outwardly with their mouth and identified with the church through believers' baptism. He's encouraging them to do three things, three things that are absolutely necessary for our comfort and our security in this present evil world. Now get this right if you don't get anything else this morning. If God has revealed himself to you as the Lord your righteousness, you cannot, listen to this now, you cannot lose that which God gave you. It's, it's impossible. Preacher, I, you, this is the record. This is the witness. God hath given us eternal life. And this life is where? It's in his son. And whatsoever the Lord does, how long is it done for? He said this to Malachi, I am the Lord God, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So if he's given me life, he's not going to turn. Now, tragically, we do at times turn. We get wayward in our walk. Do we not? Praise God, he, he brings us back. So he's telling them and he's telling you and me that first thing that we got to do is, look, we got to always rejoice where? Not in what we have in this, this, this time, these things of time and sense. What do we rejoice in? We rejoice in the Lord. Isn't that what Paul told those at Philippi? Rejoice in the Lord always. Where? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say what? Rejoice. Rejoice where? Rejoice in the Lord. 
There's not a lot in this world I can rejoice in. How about you? I mean, everything that I see, I, I, I think that's why I, I, people seem to think that if you don't follow the news, you're like an ostrich and sticking your head in the sand. I'm tired of the trouble and turmoil that it stirs up in my old humanity, keeping up with all this stuff. I mean, it's, this world in which we live, and particularly our country in which we live, there's something new and crazier every single solitary day that I live. How about you? And if I, if I concentrated on where our economy's headed, and all of you, especially you that drive long distances to be with, with us, how much did gas go up from when you came last week to when you came this week? Jeremy told me last night we were standing outside, and he said, boy, gas is going up. I said, yeah, they're saying now that by the end of summer, we're going to be paying $5 a gallon of gas. And he said, Daddy, he said, I paid two eighty eight at Walmart last week. He said, I paid three twenty nine to get gas to come over here this week. That's troubling. There's some people that, that cannot afford to pay that kind of money to be able to drive to where a gospel church is at. And I tell you, there's people, and I wish you could meet some of these brethren that I get an opportunity to talk with every week that are, are much further than you people so gratefully and graciously have driven. You know, Kenny and Sandra and Brenda Kay and Donna and Ken and Ray coming over and all of you that drive, I mean, some drive from Monroe and, and Athens and other places to be here. You know, it's, it's, it, that, that's, that's hard. I mean, well, it's, it's not hard. I guess, well, I guess it is hard. It's hard physically. You have to get up earlier to be here. But there's people, folks, that are, I'm talking about a thousand miles away, sitting in places that are, make, make Ruston, Louisiana seem like a little hick, the little hick town that it actually is, with a minor population, with millions of people in the area, and they've looked everywhere and cannot find a gospel church. And so they're, this morning, they're at their house sitting in front of their TV or sitting in front of a little computer screen or sitting at their phone right now, and they're watching either us or Bill or Scott or, or Gary or Tim James or Jim Bird or anybody anywhere that's preaching the gospel of God's free grace. And I talked with one guy this week, and he said this. He said, people that have a place to sit and be with brethren, he said, I wish they knew what I would give to be able to be there. Don't take it for granted. This isn't, this, look, do you realize how precious the gospel ministry is and how fleeting it is? I spend, I spend a lot of my time thinking about what the future holds for Grace Baptist Church. And I know and I thank God that God controls the future, but you, people that are with us have young children, you need to know and you need to understand the only way that God brings his people to the truth is how? It's through the proclamation of the truth. And there's no guarantee, and I know God's absolutely sovereign. People say, well, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Well, good for you. I do too. So do the Muslims. But when God tells us he's chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, it behooves us, it is our responsibility as believing parents and believing grandparents, what should we do? We put those we love where? Under the gospel. 
And it doesn't guarantee they'll be saved. I cannot, and I, I'd be foolish to stand up here and say, if you put your kids under the gospel, they're going to be saved. That's not true. That'd be a lie. But I can tell you this much, and this is not a lie. If you do not put your friends and your family and your children under the gospel, you know what? They will never come to know the truth. They're not just going to be sitting at their house one day and all of a sudden they feel all warm and fuzzy and have some emotional experience and accept Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. It does not work that way. you got to hear the truth. These people had heard the truth. And now they're in danger of forsaking the truth. And he's telling those that are remaining, look, you've got to be at peace one with another. And there's got to be true holiness within the church. What's that true holiness? I told you this a couple of weeks ago. That true holiness is what? It's an uncompromising, unbending spirit about how God's just to justify. That's the holiness. It's not, not, not how... which we should walk. Now, don't, I mean, people, they, they take your words all out of context. I don't want that to happen. We should, we should have a desire to be with God's people. We should have a desire to study the book. We should have a desire to pray. We should have a desire to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should, and we do seek by God's grace to do what? To live appropriately in this present world. We don't want our character and our conduct to be that which brings reproach and contempt on that which we profess we believe. But that's not the holiness we're not to compromise. It's the gospels, the holiness that we do not compromise. And then we told you the second thing we have to do is what do we have to do? We have to uh, seek peace. We have to see first thing we have to do is we have to rejoice in the Lord, never leave the gospel. It's our hope. The second thing we have to do, what? We have to seek, seek peace with all men without compromising the gospel. That, like I told you last Sunday, that's our position toward those that are outside the church. Uh, we're to seek peace. We're to, and Paul put it like this to those that wrong. We are to live as much as possible peaceably with who? All men. That's lost men both religious and unreligious. But we're to do so without compromising the gospel. But now that brings us to the third thing that every justified believing saint has to do. And here's here's, here's it is. The third thing we must do, promote peace and holiness in the church. Look at verse 15. Looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. After giving us our duty toward all men outside the local church, outside of our local congregation, the apostle gives you and me our duty toward those who are within the local assembly our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now listen, those who believe God's gospel, believe God's promise, who by God-given faith rest in Christ's righteousness alone is only ground and hope and cause of salvation, they, listen, they are justified. They're not in the process of getting justified. They are declared righteous. 
and they, those who believe and have rested in Christ as the Lord their righteousness, possess eternal life. And so he says to those who at least by outward appearance have rested in Christ and their hope is in Christ and they appear to to possess eternal salvation, eternal life through Jesus Christ, he tells them, listen, looking diligently. In other words, what's he telling them? In in a careful inspection, not a fruit inspector, (laughs) not looking at how how you talk, how you walk, but looking internally, looking diligently, it calls for them to make a careful inspection aimed at a certain end within the church. What's his goal? The promotion of spiritual good and the prevention of spiritual evil where? Listen, as much as I think everything in this country is... Can you, can you envision where we're at now? Seriously. Did you ever think that we would be at the situation where we don't know what a woman and a man is? Huh? I mean, if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, just 10 years ago, do you think in 2023 there will be a controversy about whether what a woman is and what a man is, and we'll have women, men dressed like women fighting for a right to dress in a women's locker room and compete against women in sports? I'd have told you you'd lost your mind. Huh? Wouldn't you? I mean, I knew things were getting bad, but I never thought we'd get there this fast. But as much evil as there is out there, that's not my concern. (laughs) You couldn't get much more vile than Rome. Was the church safe? Yes, indeed. You couldn't get much more than what Babylon was vile. In the midst of such vile, you had Daniel, you had Shadrach, you had Meshach, you had Abednego, right? Abednego, I think. Abednego. (laughs) Careful with that. (laughs) They were safe and they were secure because of where they were at. Not in Babylon, where were they at? Their Lord was with them and they were with their Lord. And see, he makes this word, he uses this word, he said, looking diligently lest any man. That word, any man, you know what it means? Some man. Some. Some. And that word translated, he said, lest some should fail. That word fail means to be in lack of or to be in want of. This is important. To be in lack of or to be in want of. Let me read you this verse in Young's literal translation. Looking diligently over lest anyone be failing of the grace of God. So what's the command here? The command here concerns the church's responsibility to guard, listen now, to guard against those who are what? False professors that are where? Sitting right in here. Remember, Paul, we'll we get to it in a minute. I'll get there. <laughs> jumped ahead. I almost jumped ahead in my notes. Maybe we can get that. See, this, this, you think, this, this inspection is every believer's duty. It's not just mine, Kenny. It's all our duty, and it's designed and commanded by God as a means to do what? To present evil from rising up where? Not out there. You can't, I can't. They've got laws to try to prevent that. How's that working out? 
I saw again a couple weeks ago that Texas is again trying, you know what they're trying to do? They're trying to put the Ten Commandments back in all the buildings. Because they seem to be of the opinion, we get the Ten Commandments put back in this thing, going to get holy again. It doesn't work that way. And here's the thing. If a church and church members within a local assembly don't fulfill this obligation commanded by our God, it has been the ruin of many gospel churches throughout history. Think about what Paul, and that's actually where I wanted to be at now. Think about Paul's command to the elders at the church of Ephesus when he was about to leave them. He gathered them all together and he said, And behold, I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all, for I have shunned, not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. He said, I preach to you everything about Christ's person, about his work, about his accomplishment, about full, free justification, eternal life in him, about the fact that we are made holy in him, and about the fact that there is indeed a resurrection from the dead, as we're going to talk about in the worship hour this morning. He says, goes on, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock of God over which God hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. Now listen, to feed what? The church of God. And then he defines a church of God for us, which he hath purchased with his own blood. What did he purchase? All men? No. Purchased a church. Now listen to these words, for I know this, I know this, that after my departing, after I leave, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. He says, so what's coming? Two things are coming at the church. False prophets are coming from the outside. These people that, that are are well-respected, knowledgeable, articulate, kind, compassionate, care, seem to care greatly for all of your needs and your problems and your difficulties, are able to, what, what are they now? They're wolves, and they, they, if, a, if a wolf came into your camp, would you invite it up to the fire? No. But if a wolf came in in sheep's clothing, what might you do? So if, 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 they, if it walks like a duck, duck, talks like a duck, walks like a duck, talks like a duck, you think it's a duck, right? So Satan's not out there trying to deceive people by being way off base. You understand that, right? Satan's not going to... Satan, Satan though, though that's enough to deceive the common ordinary man, that doesn't deceive the elect of God. What deceives the elect of God? When people use language that's so close to what the truth is, but yet at some point along the line, they deny it. They change just a few things. They say, oh, yes, God is absolutely sovereign. God chose a people in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. Christ came and redeemed and justified those people by his obedience unto death at Calvary. God raised him again to prove that justification was accomplished for his people. But 
if you don't go to church or you're not holy. And that's the thing. We always get back to that. Define for me how you define holiness. I saw one guy this week. He, he posted about me on Facebook, and he made this comment. He said that me and Bill at times that we say that, that the law of the believer is no longer under the law of God for a rule of life. I believe that's exactly what this book teaches, don't you? But yet they'll say, and they'll, it, it sounds good, you, you better be trying, and you should. And <laughs> the words, these words are so easily deceived, deceiving. You should seek, and I hope you do, and me too, we do, we do seek to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, don't we? You got there yet? Do you think you'll get there in this lifetime? I mean, you think about that. I thought about that a lot this week. Our Lord, remember that rich young ruler came to our Lord and he said, Lord, what, what's the great commandment? He's a lawyer. What's the great commandment? See, he was seeking to deceive our Lord. What, what's the great commandment? Our Lord told him what? This is the first commandment. And this is the great commandment. Which one? Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. This is the great commandment. This is the first and great commandment. And the second commandment is likened to it what? Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang the whole law. And there's people out there that are five-point Calvinists and Reformed that think they're doing that. And I'll tell you what, they'll go this far. They think you better be doing it. And I'll promise you in the back of their mind, because I was one of them at one point in time, I'm measuring whether you're measuring up by what my measure of righteousness is, by how I'm doing. Wrong standard. God hath appointed in a day in which he'll judge this world in righteousness, not mine, not my standard. Not my thoughts on the Ten Commandments. He's going to judge this world in righteousness by that man whom he hath appointed. Who's the only one that's loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, strength, and loved his neighbor as himself? Who's the only one that's done that? There's only been one. Even the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, they're going to come in. These grievous wounds are going to enter among you, not sparing the flock. But listen to this. Also of your own selves. Where? Inside the church. People you've known. Shall arise, men arise, listen, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So where's... Where, Where's the trouble start? Right out there. It starts inside the church. And folks, this has nothing to do with when, he, when he's commanding them to take heed to themselves and guard against it. This is speaking about self-righteous notions about establishing some kind of discipline committee and setting it up to police the church. That's not what we're doing. We're to be careful and we're to hope and we're to pray for the salvation of what? Even those false professors, I, I have never in my life that since the time we've been together wanted anybody to leave here. 
I don't care how, how, how much they dislike me or have against me. I don't want them to leave the gospel. Do you? But I'm not going to compromise the gospel because I'm worried that they might get their feelings more hurt. We cannot do that. We're not to encourage, we're not to condone unbelief among the saints. We're not to side with them. We are never to side with those false professors against who? Our brothers and sisters in Christ. But look at this next phrase. He said, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. We, we, we were going through these same verses a couple of weeks ago in our Wednesday night Bible study, and I was looking ahead and reading different commentaries, and one of the things that really jumped out at me, he, that word root, you know what it means? Lest there be any root of bitterness. It's a, that word root means offspring. It's like a child. And that word bitterness means a bitter root. So in other words, this offspring, he said, lest there be this, lest a, a, a offspring of a bitter root springs up and troubles you. So what's he saying? Lest these false professors that bring forth nothing but evil fruit, what do they do? They trouble the child of God. It brought, it brought, me to, it brought to my mind Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. But listen to this, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good, listen, listen, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. <laughs> Think about that. Well, they have trouble with that in false religion. When a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, and listen, neither can a corrupt tree. Bring forth good fruit. See, this root of bitterness, it springs up and troubles all, defiles many. You know what it is? It's a false professor whose heart is inclined to do one thing only, to compromise God's gospel under one pretense or another. He, they, they, have a, they have a secret desire to return. You know what they want to go back to? They want to go back to the doctrine of their old salvation. They want to go back. And he's already told us, we are not of them that do what? If, if you can go back to what you've had previously, you, you, you don't know the gospel. I don't know any other way to say it. And I've said this as long as I have been the pastor of this group, and I, I believe it with all my heart, if the Lord lets us stay 20 more years together here, unless you've, you've left this place and went to be with our Lord, you know what you're going to do? You're going to be right here because there's no other place to be. There's no other hope for you or for me. And here's the problem. He, he, they usually begin their apostasy, their going away, by, you know what they do? They begin to neglect regular attendance of the worship. Oh, John, no, uh, John Owen, I posted it this week, and uh, it, it's a, it's a, True statement, he said this, and this I believe this, but he says the final apostasy of every false professor 
the final apostasy of every false professor, it always begins with a gradual forsaking of assembling ourselves together. And it always does. I'm telling you, once you take yourself out from under the gospel, unless the love of God is in your heart by God's grace and mercy, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to go away. You're going to leave us. And then he tells us about these people. Because here, here's why they, 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 they go away. They never repented. See, what's true repentance? True repentance is a change of mind, a radical change of mind. It can only be affected in the heart, mind, and soul of a justified saint. It's a radical change of mind about what removed God's wrath and gained God's favor. Well, what removed God's wrath? Christ's blood and his righteousness unto death. His obedience unto death removed the wrath. It reconciled me to God. Formerly, what did I think removed the wrath? I thought it was a joint effort. Didn't you? I thought Jesus came, suffered, bled, and died, and then he told me what I'm supposed to do, and if I don't hold out to the end, if I don't fulfill whatever obligation religion places on me, I'll ultimately lose my life spiritually and eternally. And nobody could change my mind from that. I would argue with a buzzsaw about that. And then the gospel came along and the Holy Spirit revealed the gospel to me and in me, revealing Christ in me, the hope of glory, and he changed my mind. And now I look back on everything I did prior to 1987, sometime in that year when the Lord brought me to true faith and true repentance. Everything that I did, every sermon that I preached was heresy and deadly. Every prayer that I prayed was to an idol. All the love that I showed, even to those I considered to be my brethren, idolatry. People say, you don't really believe that. With all my heart, I believe it. Just like Paul believed it. You think about the radical change in Saul of Tarsus. Before, he loved everybody that was of his former way. After the road to Damascus, when the Lord revealed himself to and in the apostle Paul, how did he look on those in his form? He, he still loved them, didn't he? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He said, I would to God that I myself could be cast away if the Lord would have mercy on them. So he loved them, right? We do. We want them saved. You want your family saved. Don't want your friends saved. He didn't go back. Couldn't go back. Every time he went back, what did he get? He got in trouble, just like our Lord. Why? Because he had to tell them the truth. Because he knew the only way they were going to be set free is what if they got to hear. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You can't tell them lies. You have to tell them the truth. And so he says that these people that are have never repented and have a, have a secret desire to go back to those old dead works, he calls them profane people. Look at verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person is Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. You know, it, here's an example of a rude bitterness. Esau was Isaac's firstborn son. And being raised in that family, he participated in family worship. Did he not? And his father 
like his father before him, had taught him what? Substitution. He had taught him satisfaction. He had taught this man about God not charging sin to him, just like he taught his brother. So he knew the promises of God of salvation was conditioned where? On the promised Messiah alone. And he knew that God was just to justify sinners based on the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, knowing every bit of this, what did Esau think? Don't matter. It's of no value. And so he sold it for what? Some red potted meat. Well, I think a deviled ham. Yeah, devil meat. That's some of the nasty. I wouldn't feed that to my dog. But I mean, that's all it, that's all it took. He was hungry. Let's, the, kingdom of, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and joy and peace, where? In the Holy Spirit. So he thought, I've got to con- content this body. I'll sell you my birthright. He had, no, he had no fear of God before his eyes. And see, here's the thing. We've got to stop and consider the awful evil that this guy committed. Because God attributes to those who compromise his promise under any pretense. What does he say? Lest there be in you or in me a profane fornicator like Esau. You think about this. God, by the apostle Paul, continually presents to us the absolute certainty of our salvation based on imputed righteousness of Christ and the absolute certainty of eternal misery for those who base their salvation on anything other than the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he warns us repeatedly through the scriptures against compromise of that truth. And he gives us one example after another of the final end of everybody who compromises that truth, all in order not to cause fear in us, but cause us to do a hold fast the profession of your faith without wavering, in spite of everything. And that's got to be a settled truth in our mind. Because you think about this. Look at verse 17. For he, you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, verse 17, Hebrews 12, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. You know, afterward. Afterward. How long after? About 40 or 50 years. That's not long after. About 40 or 50 years after his birthright, Esau was rejected. 40 or 50 years. Because, see, here's the thing. It, you know, it says here that he sought it bitterly, with tears, carefully with tears, but he found no place of repentance. Esau didn't seek the grace of repentance from God. He didn't have any respect for the honor of God's redemptive character, which that birthright typifies, that promise of salvation in Christ alone. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 27, verse 38 through, uh, verse 34 through 38 and verse 41. But here's the thing. When he came to his, when he found out his birthright, it was already been sold 50, 40 to 50 years before for the red meat. And then Isaac and his mama tricked dad. I mean, uh, what was his mom's name? No, Sarah was Rebecca. 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 You sure it's Rebecca? 
Yeah, I think it was Rebecca. His mama. And this guy, Jacob, what did they do? They Remember they put the hair on his arm, tricked his daddy, and he fixed the meat just like Esau would have fixed his mama did and fixed the meat and gave it to him. He pronounced the birthright on him. He goes away and Esau comes in and what does he find out? His daddy says, is that, who, who's that? He said, it's your son Esau. He said, you done, you've been, been here. And he said, I pronounced your breath, blessing where? On the brother. That happened by accident. Huh? You think when, when Esau sold, gave, sold the birthright, was that by accident? No, because per, God's purpose was where? In Isaac, in Jacob shall thy seed be called, right? That's the promise. Esau had renounced his birthright. He is renouncing that birthright like a person who's privileged to hear the gospel preached person who hears of the great spiritual wealth that can be obtained through Christ, God's grace in Christ, but he doesn't see the value of it. It's not important. He might give mental agreement to the gospel, but he doesn't truly seek the grace of faith. He doesn't seek true repentance, and he doesn't possess true love to God. Can you envision, we'll quit with this this morning, can you envision departing from what your hope is right now? Huh? Yeah, I, I, I've been on this walk of faith for nearly 37 years. And there's been a lot of tremendous highs, and I've tried to disregard the tremendous highs that I've had spiritually because most of the time, you know what's fueling them? Emotionalism. And there's been a lot of lows in my life. 37 years preaching to God. There's been a lot of highs and a lot of lows. But the one thing that's been constant through the highs and through the lows, you know what it's been? It's been God's love toward me in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And every time I've been high or every time I've been low, you know where he always pulls me back to? He pulls me back to Christ alone. His blood, his righteousness is my only hope. And that's what his, his point is to these people. Stick to the hope that God brought you to faith in. Repentance hand. Rest in Christ and you'll be safe and secure. We'll stop right there and we'll come back together next Lord's Day. You dismiss the worship. Hour.